0: You know you, you go shopping you come home your fridge is full that's not something that they have all the time so when you get to open your freezer and, and you're not stressing about how we're going to feed the family tonight or how we're going to feed the family for the week like I don't think you can really even describe the relief of that. Welcome
1: to Life on the Land a Gracie Her podcast telling the stories of women living across regional rural and remote Australia. I'm Emma Herbert your host for this episode. I generally don't think about what I'm going to eat on any given day, because I don't have to. I know when I wake up, there'll be food in my fridge, my freezer, and my pantry. Because of this, I'm one of the richest people in the world. And realising recently just how many Australians are going hungry, or with little access to fresh, quality food, was such a reality and privilege check for me. I was really ignorant about food insecurity until I interviewed today's guests, South Australian land producer Robin Verrill and country music singer and proud Bijara woman Jessica Wishart, who is based in Alice Springs. These women come from different backgrounds, but they have a common goal, to tackle food and, in particular, meat insecurity in remote Aboriginal communities. Together, they founded Kura to Country, one of Australia's only Aboriginal-led and run meat distribution companies, delivering bulk meat packages on country with affordable, interest-free payment plans. Each woman has an incredible story, so we wanted to share both. First, we spoke to Jess, who is a South Australian Music Award-winning country music artist. Jessica's love of singing and songwriting was ingrained in her when she was a little girl, growing up in
0: Alice Springs. My grandfather who, who raised me with my mum and raised my mom, he was the biggest fan of country music. All of my country music influence come from just listening um, to the music that he listened to um, and he would choose the songs that I would sing. He was big fans of like, Loretta Lynn and, and Patsy Cline and he would say, you got to learn these songs, this is what, what you need to be singing for us. So I would... Um, you know, I'd learn them word for word and, and sing them just in the old tunes that the old girls would sing them in. And and my grandmother would love those songs. And every um, fortnight here in Alice Springs, they had a country music night um, at our Araluen Festival Centre or Araluen Cultural Centre, and um, people would go there and perform. And it was just a real casual thing. But all the old fellas would go there and 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 just enjoy a good night of country music and. It was such a ritual. So every Saturday my grandparents would take me there and I was, you know, I think I started going there when I was 10, they'd put me on the stage and um, one of my grandfathers would play the guitar and and I'd sing all the old tunes and, yeah, so it was really big, like, for me. When I was young, music was was big. I didn't get serious about it until I moved to Adelaide um, and I met uh, Nancy Bates, who is, um, she's actually my manager at the moment from Deadly Management, but she was my biggest mentor in music and and um, really engaged me with lots of singer-songwriters and, and taught me how to how to write songs and focus on telling my story and really showcase the power of music and how we can share our experiences as Aboriginal people through that mm. um, so this first song I remember the first song I wrote was to my son you know he was sort of had lots of questions about being Aboriginal and you know why people or kids would say things to him and you know just how how how. Why his experiences were different to his friends at school. Um, so I wrote a song, a song called "My Black Boy," and I released it as an EP and and, and and the main single of my EP called "My Black Boy." And that was, you know, that was a song to tell him to be proud of who he is and where he comes from, and and not to shy away from that and be strong and be strong in culture because that's going to be what takes you, you know, far in life. And and knowing where you come from means you'll know where you're going. Um, and that was really powerful, and I remember, like, when my, my mother's up here, they all heard that song and they were just crying because, you know, that, that just resonates with them and the stories that they needed to tell their children, you know.
1: Country music does have such a rich history of storytelling and, and it is made to be sung around a campfire. I mean, your grandfather yeah. sounds like such a character. What was. was yeah. What were some of your most vivid memories of growing up with him?
0: Just... Massive, massive influence, and he definitely shaped the woman that I am today. He was such a kind and caring man and he was such a thoughtful person. And, um, and yeah, like he could play the harmonica and every, literally every morning would wake up to the sound of the harmonica. He could also play the gum leaf, so he could get a gum leaf and and play tunes on a gum leaf. Um, And just really knowledgeable. And, like, I remember growing up, whenever there was a difficult time or whenever I had to face adversity, he just always had the right advice and, you know, he's very experienced and, you know, a, a man of knowledge. And um, so I just remember him and and, and also my mum. My mum was a single mum and she was a hard worker and she was raising three kids of her own and then all the neighbour kids like that would come in and, and hang out on the weekends or even during the week and, you know, there was always lots of kids around and I think growing up in Alice Springs the freedom that we had back in there in that day like just being able to ride our bikes and go to the skate park or go to the pool or you know just ride around the neighborhood and feel safe and and knowing that you know there's always going to be people watching out for you and looking out for you and yeah I, I had a really good childhood here um you're too young to realize the different things that happen when you're Aboriginal compared to when you're not until you're a bit older I guess and and when we got a bit older into our teens, we just sort of seen the difference of, you know, you had to keep safe when you went into town and you had to avoid the police and if you did see the police, you knew how to to act because you sort of trained on how, what to say and, and how to say it. And, you know, just, you know, my friends all, you know, experiencing the justice system and, you know, being involved in the justice system and just, you know, just how shit it was for them and... You know, there were lots of good things about growing up here and that was about the family and going out bush and being connected to culture. But, there, you know, there were a lot of hard things about growing up in Alice Springs, the remoteness, you know, um, exposure to different things, universities. You know, I remember growing up and never being, never even visiting a university, not knowing what a university was until I was an adult. Like, so just things like that when we were younger, we, there was just a lot of things that... I think we didn't get an opportunity to see or experience because we weren't living in a city and also because we were Aboriginal, you know, so. How important was it for you
1: going bush and and what was it like getting on country?
0: Um, I think when I was a kid it was just a part of life, so you're not really, you just take it for granted. And we, like, grow up going out. um, uh, My mum, she would take us out to, like, Jay Creek and out to her um, block west of Alice Springs and that's where a lot of our childhood was, was was just growing up on the block and running around with kids and we had a little um, bus set up like car that we would drive out there and they just it was just like a bush car that the kids learned to drive in so it was so good um, and all the kids would pile up in the car and we would take it around in the dirt and yeah, it was, it was so good. It was so good to be around family. It was so good to, you know, just cooking kangaroo tails and having stew and rice and hearing stories and telling scary stories as kids out in the bush. And, yeah, it was, it was fantastic and it was really important and it's something that I really want to make sure my kids don't miss out on.
1: Hmm. We were yarning yesterday about um, some of the systematic, the systemic rather, um, oppression that you see now, especially in, in Alice. I mean, I'd love to kind of touch on on some of the stuff that we were talking about in terms mm. of what you're seeing every day living in Alice Springs.
0: Yeah, look, I think and this has been happening since colonization, I guess, and we're just seeing the outcomes and um and what systemic racism looks like and what oppression looks like. You know, like it's 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 the quality of education. It's Western education not working for Aboriginal kids, and and it's it still being the preferred education for for our government. Um, you know, it, it's it's unemployment rates, it's welfare dependency, it's access to money. Like we're all living. Aboriginal people are living way below the poverty line. You know, um, it's it's housing. It's no housing. It's it's being removed from communities because there's no opportunities to live out there. There's no housing out there. There's no access to money out there. There's, you know, you've got one shop. That's it. Um, it's healthcare. It's incarceration rates. It's our young people. It's 100% of the young people in detention centres in the Northern Territory are Aboriginal. Mm. Okay. That's what it looks like. It's... Um, there are just so many factors in, in what we're dealing with it's the crime rate it's having no you know nothing else for Aboriginal or young fellows to engage with like you know it, it's simple like um we have town camps here and a lot of our families are living in town camps the young people at night time come to town and they're causing a bit of racket and they're breaking in and you know damaging property and whatnot and I remember going to a um uh, like a community consultation with with families, and the consultation is around like what can we do for our Aboriginal families and young people and how do we
2: support you know
0: their wellbeing? And I brought the question up in one of the consultations with a group that was sitting there, a group of family members. I was like, all oh, these kids are going to town at nighttime. What can we do to you know get them back to their homes or get them back to the town camps and make sure they're safe with family. And the young fellows that were sitting there, they were like, "We go to town for Wi-Fi. We don't have any Wi-Fi in the town camps. Why can't we have Wi-Fi? You know, there's free Wi-Fi in town, so Of course, we're going to go to town." Mm. I thought, "Fuck! Something's so simple. Why don't we have? Why don't they have access to internet? Mm. You know, like it's just not even afforded. Like we're not even afforded the same. Um, just anything. Like you know, there's we've got 30 people living in a house. They, you know, they're all sharing one bathroom, one toilet. There's no other houses being built." Um, and then when there is, it's like one or two houses per town camp or three houses per town camp, but there's 500 people that need houses. Like it's just, yeah, it's all, there's so many different factors that contribute it. And this is all, this is all around not understanding the way Aboriginal people need to be living, not, under, not putting um, priority to, to the standard of living that Aboriginal people have and need, I guess, um, health care, Schools, like we're still doing this Western way of education when we need to be doing things more like children's ground and and actually having um, language and culture as a centre of our education for our young people and having, you know, the Western education second to that. Um, yeah, so there, there are lots and lots of different things that contribute to the systemic. And then we've got racism, you know, Aboriginal people not being served at the fucking shop or Aboriginal people are getting followed around with um, by the security guards or not feeling welcome to go to different places in town or not feeling welcome to go to the hospital, not feeling safe to go to the hospital, not being able to communicate with our doctors because English is the you know second or third language and not having um, Aboriginal people work at the hospital to really support that or enough. Like if there are Aboriginal people when they are working in government um government departments, they're spread so thinly because there's not enough of them to do the work, you know, and they're and they're always the go-to because when you're engaging with Aboriginal people, you need Aboriginal people doing that work, you know? so just yeah, the, I use just endless. It's honestly endless, and 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 sometimes it's really heartbreaking and it's really hard. Um, and obviously, the biggest thing for us was food security at the time, and 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 how do we combat that and contribute to that? Because you can't do anything if you're hungry. You can't do you can't do school. You can't do work. You can't do family. You can't do health. You can't do nothing if you're hungry. Mm. Um, and that was the really big thing. That is still a very big thing for our families um, living remotely in in in. Auburn. In the Northern territory
1: with so with so many factors and so many complex um, foundations behind the issues. I mean, how do you not fall into despair or get overwhelmed with the largeness with which with what yeah. you're looking at?
0: Um, I do sometimes still just get really overwhelmed, and and it stunts me a bit like sometimes if I'm having a day where I'm like wow this is a lot I can't move forward like I'm, I'm almost frozen mm. um, but I've gotten better over it like I think when I was younger it was and and coming into wanting to have an impact and how do I use my leadership and how do I use my platform to make change and provide education and and bring about awareness I think when I was younger I was it was really difficult like I knew I had a lot to do but I wore all of it and mm. I wanted to sing about all of it and I wanted to make programs and I wanted to do you know have input everywhere because it needed to be done and influenced by Aboriginal people and you know how come we're not engaging with you know the language group for this program and how come you're not doing this And how can you still not get it how can we be in 2020 and not still not get it like I was really angry For a really long time, like, I was just so upset. Also because I'm a mum, like, I have kids that have to be in this society with you people that still have no idea. Like, it was, yeah, I was really overwhelmed. Um, I think, um, you know, doing the GLF and developing my leadership skills and working with just phenomenal black women, like, that have done this and have been down this path and have been, you know, um, fighting the fight and, you know fighting against the system all their life, but yet they're just still so posed and they're just they're still so calm and they're still so thoughtful in how they lead and thoughtful in the words that they choose. And just being around black women like that that are just champions has really shaped um, how I conduct myself now and and just picking your fights and, and contributing where you can and 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 really focusing on the impact that you're having at the time. And I'm not going to be able to solve all the issues and I'm not going to be able to have input with everything, but I think if I can just, you know, have input where in a focused area and, and make a difference and then pass that on to someone else and trust that, you know, that they can do that and they're going to build up the skills to do that and take that where it needs to be, that's the yeah. biggest biggest learning thing and then I can move on and do something else and then have my impact there and then move on and do something else. And and that's where I'm at at the moment, I think, just being able to focus on and having that time and focusing on food and security and and my impact and and creating something that someone else can go all right we've got this now and we know what we can do now yeah yeah and upskilling others so that it's you know it's an army yeah and taking people on a journey so they can see where it's come from and and where it's going and and definitely upskilling others how do we do that how do we create space for that how do we create space for them to have to make mistakes and to come back and to learn and, and to navigate the systems and to also not be afraid of their own voices as black people, you know, like and, and also like we have to stop being, um, you know, worried about how it's going to make someone else feel. Like I think that was a big learning curve for me. Like do I say are they going to get upset? How is this going to end? Like we've just got to get past that and go this is how it is mm. and this is what's happening and this is what needs to happen. And if that's upsets you, then why? And maybe you need to go and reflect on that. You know, mm-hmm.
1: starts with conversations. But mm-hmm. I think you are so right in that everything starts with a full stomach. I mean, you can't learn and you can't um, get back to the basics without food. So, mm-hmm. food security is where it really starts. Tell me about you're living in Adelaide for for how long? Ten years? Yes. Yeah yeah Mm -hmm. um living in Adelaide you know working a lot in community and you came back to Alice and um at the Mm. beginning of the pandemic tell me about that experience and and what you were finding in the shops and what you were seeing
0: yeah so Adelaide for 10 years and then um I was just I wanted to come home and I didn't know when I was coming home but you know there was often conversations in my family I was like like I'm missing my friends I'm missing my family and My kids aren't getting enough time on on country and with their family and out bush and they need more language. And um, so we started actually just coming home and and visiting a lot more often. And then when we were up here, the pandemic happened and they shut down the communities and it was all chaotic. And um, I remember my brother and I, we were like, both of my brothers and I started going to the shops and getting a heap of meat, which wasn't too bad in town. But then when we started sending money, the communities for families to get me, it was just outrageous. I, just, I was in disbelief. Like I just was like, how are, we gonna, how are they going to survive out there if we shut down for weeks, you know? Um, and, and they were taking supplies. Like there was organ, well, I mean, they weren't taking supplies at the start, so it was hard. It was slow going um, and we weren't prepared for it. But when they did start, to, when there was supplies being taken to Bush, it was just so expensive. So if it was there, how are we going to afford it? Um, and why was it so expensive?
1: Like obviously the logistics of freight is is part of it, but there are lots of nuanced
0: factors behind the expense. There is, yeah, there are so many factors. So and that's maintaining the shop, maintaining the staff, um, uh, the price of freights because you know the competition is just not there. Um, yeah so there there were just a lot of factors and then there's price gouging and then there's people wanting you know that some of the shops are privately owned and they're making money and you know so and it all you know when you only got one shop in a community they can price it however they want there's no monitoring system in place at the moment so it's just it's full-on they were they were, were having pictures sent back of you know a I remember seeing a lettuce that was like $7 and there was, you know, chops. There was chops 100K from town for six chops. It was costing 60 bucks. Like it was, and that was on road. So and tins of and baby formula. And it's always frozen and it's part the formula. You just can't afford out there. 50 bucks um, for a tin. I saw it. Yeah. Just, it's like, it's just crazy. And it's not like you go, oh, ah, oh, we heard it's expensive at shops. Like it is not just expensive. It is outrageous. I remember the investigation into the food security that happened, um, like a you know federal sort of investigation, and people could do submissions into what they were experiencing. and Crude Country did a submission, and then I remember there was a hundred and something, like a hundred and I can't remember, one hundred and eighty or something, submissions into this um, inquiry into food insecurity. So my brother and I printed all of them and read them all, um, and I remember reading one from a community where the woman wouldn't identify herself because she said there are signs at our front shop saying if we come in there with a phone or take photos of the prices, we will never be allowed back into this shop, and this is our only shop, and we are 400Ks from anywhere else. So please don't forget this community, but I cannot identify us. Outrageous. Like, how is this going on? How is this allowed to happen, you know? And I just, my heart was breaking.
1: Because how, how remote are these shops and these communities and how many um, people is one shop kind of servicing generally?
0: We've got communities that have up to 1,000 people and we've got communities that have, you know, 40 people. Um, a lot of the communities are around 200, 100, 250, 300 um, people. Um, but at any one time there could be something happening in that community where lots of families come, so a shop that, was servicing 300 people may now need to, you know, service 500 people or something like that. So it's always changing. Um, um, yeah, really hard, really hard. I actually remember reading a story in the inquiry as well about um, a shop that was on the top end, like really remote top end, and the pandemic happened and then they had a storm and then it was um, the power. They had a power outage. The community had a power outage and they were really remote and the power outage went for two days. And instead of the shop just going, we're just going to feed everyone, they shut the doors and locked everybody out because they had no power to use the FPOS and they they would only accept FPOS. Um, So the families rode in and they, they were supported by one of the community workers and they said, our families went two days without food. Some of our families couldn't access, they hadn't access the shop for two days, had no food. They were at the front of the shop, like, banging to get in. We need food for our kids. And the shop didn't open the door because they were not going to get paid because there was no power. So we can't use, we can't, you can't pay us. So how are you going to buy food?
1: And So how did your brother and you come up with Kura to Country?
0: Um, so I remember just, we went through it. We were just literally sitting in the car. We went for a drive. I think we having a bacon and egg. We were sitting in this car on the side of the road. We were about to head out bush. And he was like,
2: he was really young
0: at the time and really angry at what we were dealing with. And he's like, there has to be something. There has to be something. And then he was like, how is it that Robin can get meat? Like, we know a farmer. She's getting meat to China. Like, why can't we give her meat here? And I just remember going... Like, I just don't see why not. I don't see why not. I don't see why not. Like, let's ask her. And then we come back. When we got back to Adelaide, we called her up and we said, we've got this idea. We want you to come and hear us out. And we shared that with her. And we said, what are the barriers? And she said, nothing. Let's do it. There are no barriers. What are the barriers? If there's barriers, we get over them. Like If they need meat up there, we just get meat there. It's as easy as that. And the issues that did come up that we weren't aware of, Robin helped us to create a solution and she contacted the people we needed to speak to and she brought about awareness to people that had no idea, that had um, the ability to make a difference and and that's where we went and and she gave us the freedom to lead that where we could um, and, you know, predominantly with the community, we do the consult, we run the operations up here. But when it comes to getting meat here and making sure that they're packed properly and making sure that we're, you know, doing everything legally right and, and the business is running properly and everyone's doing their part to get the meat here, like she handles that because that's what she knows, that's what she does, that's her business. And, yeah, and it's just it was just really unreal to go, fuck, we can actually make this happen, you know. Hmm. what's it been like working with robin yeah great like i think the distance you know that's hard and and also we decided to start a business during the pandemic so that was crazy um and, and always difficult but you know zoom meetings and also if i have a question and i think the best thing for me is i've come across a lot of people that oh we've got oh we know what you're doing and we've got this idea and we want to do this and this is how we can help you and come this way and do this with us and me not being sure and being able to ring her and go, this is what's happening. I don't know how I feel about this. Like what's going on or what do you think? And just being able to trust that she's going to give me an honest answer and, Mm. you know, she thinks it's great, good. Mm. And if she does and she's like, be careful because this is what could happen, Mm. then just being able to trust, you know, trust is the biggest thing for us and and we have to be able to trust who we have our relationships with and and who we're bringing into our community and, and making sure that people have the same vision as us and, you know, she's been someone that I can ring and go. This is this is what's going on, and I need your advice, and I want to know that this is going to be the right thing for us. and And she's been great to do that. Yeah,
1: being able to spitball ideas, it's it's absolutely critical. So, take me back to when you decided that this is the way forward, and this was going to be a sustainable model that would work. You then uh, had to contact Food Bank, and and you you basically launched Food Bank in in Alice. Tell me a little bit mm. about
0: that journey. Mm. Um, so we were literally in the middle of what is going to, what are we going to do here? We were struggling to find cold room space. We had a, um, heaps of meetings around the place to get, like, yeah, cold room space and a facility, and it was just so expensive, like, and it was working against us, you know, like, this is too expensive. We have to find something cheaper. It has to be an alternative. We have, like, someone has to come to the party here and support the food insecurity, you know. It's about making it affordable. Um and then my, the lady that we were working with, Jenny, she was our PR lady at the time and she knew the marketing and fundraising and PR person from Food Bank South Australia and they had been having discussions and Jenny was aware that they were wanting to come to Alice Springs and, and set up a food hub and warehouse here and, um, you know, that they wanted to do that as well but they had no one on the ground up in Alice and we were here. So I flew down to Adelaide and while I was there, we Jenny hooked up a meeting for me to meet with um, the CEO and the marketing manager. And, like, we just hit it off really well from the start. Like They were like, this is what we want to do. This is how big the cold room is going to be. Um, this is how many people we can feed and this is what we, you know, like it was incredible. Um, and a lot of their stuff is fresh produce and stuff that's donated. They do do meat but it's smaller amounts and um, it's like sausages and mince predominantly. But they do get donations of chicken and other things, but it's sporadic, and you never know what you're going to get. But still, amazing. And they were so inspired by what we were doing, and they said, "Look, the visions are the same. We work alongside each other. This is great. Like this will, will be fantastic here. How do we work together? We need cold room space. They need food bank in Alice Springs. We all need food bank in Alice Springs, but that was their mission. Um, so the arrangement was: I was um, they come up and had a meeting then in Alice. Um, and we had a bit of a launch to say um, food bank and crew country are going to be working together we're coming to alice give us six months and we're going to be here and we're going to be up and running um, which was amazing and we did that i took on a project ma- a project management role with them to start with to just get them built here like we're going to get a building we're going to get cold room here we're going to get everything done we're going to get it established here um which was hard work we had negotiations with a couple of buildings we weren't sure where we we're going to put we needed a really good spot we needed parking we needed to deal with Council regulations are really difficult here. Um, but I had a team in Adelaide that were like, you can make this happen. We're going to support you. Let's make this happen. So it was really great. Um, so we got Food Bank here. We got a, we got a beautiful building and we renovated it we got a cauldron put in and we got ready for our launch. And then I took on the, the actual uh, Food Bank regional manager role for the Central Australia region um, for about eight or nine months. And got it operating, and you know we were the, we were the we had the biggest opening of food hubs that um, Food Bank South Australia has ever had. Um, the first time they employed Aboriginal staff, which was amazing because we got to have Aboriginal staff that had language skills and um, were able to really consult and engage the Aboriginal community to come in and educate them around how to use their vouchers and where to go to get vouchers. We did lots of community consultations with like community organisations to get them to sign up to Food Bank and. It was just incredible and it was like there was so much pressure and it was exhausting and it was like so many things and your emotions go up and down. And, but it was food security, you know, and they want, we needed it here and it was, has, it's already had such an incredible impact on our community. And, yeah, just being able to be a part of that and, and, and to say that, like, yeah, to drive past the big beautiful purple building in Alice Springs, yeah, I did that. It's, it's been great. Um, and the partnership there is that um, Koori Country get the cold, cold room space in their cold room um, so that we can get meat out at affordable, affordable prices for our families and, and it's not costing them and we don't have to stick that additional overhead cost on, onto the meat. Yeah, because, you know,
1: otherwise the price gets passed on to the consumer because it's just someone has to wear that price. And you also, yeah, you also offer uh, interest rate payment plans and, uh, Uh, and yeah, yeah. which has that been a a bit of a game changer as well,
0: being able to offer that? Massive game changer. Massive game changer. That was it. That was our bread. That was also the most frustrating part of it, I guess, going back and forth to Services Australia to say, this is a need, this is an essential item. Like pay is for essential items. This is an essential item. This is food. What are you doing? Like, so we got knocked back a couple of times, but we finally got it, you know, across the line. And 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 now we have center pay available and we're doing our training on, on how to manage that. And yeah, that that is the biggest game changer. It was even like a bit of a sink or swim for us. Like if we didn't have center pay, we weren't sure if the uptake was going to be as big as we wanted it to be. Um, yeah. Because banking it affordable Yes, the prices need to be affordable, but the payment option needs to be manageable as well, um, especially because we're doing bulk products and, yeah,
1: yeah, so it's been great. And people still need to be paid. I mean, the processes of the meat, the producers of the meat, the freight of the meat, so it's kind of a it's a win-win and that's what mm-hmm. Robin speaks about a lot is that everybody gets paid but meat is still affordable and available because what is I mean, obviously the health outcomes are so huge from having fresh food. What has the response been like
0: and and what have you been experiencing from? Just being able to go and drop, um, like because my brother does the operations up here and just being able to see the photos of the kids being happy but people having fridges full of meat and deep freezers full of meat and that feeling, that feeling of going, wow, we've got to you know you you go shopping you come home your fridge is full that's not something that they have all the time so when you get to open your freezer and and you're not stressing about how we're going to feed the family tonight or how we're going to feed the family for the week like i don't think you can really even describe the relief of that and the impact that has on your um just even your emotional well-being you know like and your mental health Mm. just to be able to have food in the fridge Mm. um and then obviously the health the health outcomes are massive as well and Yeah, and we're still learning a lot, you know. We're still yet to see what the impact's going to be and we're still, you know, there's still lots of negotiations happening and we're still really, you know, the model's not set in stone yet because we have to learn and and we're still really brand new to this and, yeah. The
1: mobile cool room's going to make an an enormous difference as well just in terms of the consistency of of distribution. How Mm -hmm. often are you hoping to transport meat and, and where are you hoping to go?
0: Yeah, look, we've got a plan and the plan is that we that we launch in Tennant Creek and, and, and in Yundamu first. Um, Tennant Creek's about 500k. We could do a couple of drops on the way to Tennant Creek, but Tennant Creek's 500k and, and Yundamu's about three hours um, from our springs as well. Um, and at the moment we're still sort of going, we're still working how often we're going to do that. I think that the plan is to get there every two weeks um, if we can, but we're going to just really work on the need of the community and how often the community wants us back and, and then work out a schedule from there, like the community drive our service delivery. Um, and we want that, otherwise they're not going to want us in there. So we want to make sure that we're consulting. So the cold room is going to make it an incredible difference, um, especially for our remote communities and, and us being able to, to get the meat there and, and it be affordable. Um and how often we go there is going to really be determined by the community uptake.
1: And how remote are you looking to travel? Four hundred k's is the start, but are you looking to go even further than that eventually?
0: Yeah, look, eventually the dream is that we we go as far as Kinsworth, which is which is about a day's drive, a whole day's drive. I think they're about, I think they're about seven to nine hundred k's away. Yeah, mm, yeah, amazing. So, how can people help?
1: How can the Grazy Her community who's listening step in?
0: Um, look get on our website um, have a look have a read see what we're doing and support us a, a big part of what we we were pushing for at the start was to get um, sponsorships and donations to help make this happen um, donations to, to go towards you know the cold room and and donations to go um, towards the cost of just getting this up and running and, and and operating so that's a big that's a big thing for us um, is getting people on board to, to help us make this happen yeah mm.
1: And you're raising five beautiful boys. What is that like and how how do you manage?
0: Definitely keeps me on my toes. Um, yeah, look, we've got a blended family and there's been lots of learning and I've got two teenagers now, so um, that's been interesting. Uh, but, like, for the most part, it, it just keeps me grounded. Like, it keeps me um, focused on what we're doing and making sure that, you know, Tyson, my partner and I, and my partner's wonderful. He's a really hands-on dad. He's so supportive. And a lot of my parenting um, is influenced by him and, you know, just how he goes about He So he thinks about things and he wants the kids to be really open and be able to feel safe and to talk and, yeah, so I'm, I'm doing lots of learning, especially as the kids get older, but I'm enjoying it. I'm enjoying my time with them. I'm enjoying their different personalities and the struggles that come with that and how they push me to be a better person. And, yeah, like it, it's a lot. Five kids is a lot and it's really tiring and it can become overwhelming. And I think the biggest part is that I have to make sure that I'm stopping and I'm stopping you know to enjoy my partner and to enjoy our journey and to really appreciate each other and to appreciate our kids and to still stay in tune with their needs and and what they are feeling and how they're feeling and you know they're on their own little journeys as well and they're all so different um they've got different personalities and their needs are different and yeah it's a big big part of my life yeah Robin Varel has
1: recently been awarded the 2022 South Australian AgriFutures Rural Women's Award for her work with to Country. Food insecurity is more than just an abstract concept for the nurse and producer who experienced her own lean years after becoming a single mum when she was 20 years old. What were those early years like for you, raising your daughter
2: and, um, and doing it on your own? Some of them were pretty tough, not only mentally, but also physically, as in I would be working in a full-time job, organising, especially when she was in childcare, I was doing my training and two-thirds of my wages went literally into paying for childcare. So I was lucky enough, as I say, to be able to have some family support that I could live quite frugally, but... I can't imagine what it's like now when everything is so exponentially expensive mm-hmm. and that really what helped sh- shaped me and even telling my family years later, they all said, oh, you should have called out. But my brothers and sisters had young children of their own. And, you know, my mum, my, when I had a child, my mum and dad still had their own children in school. So mm-hmm. it became one of those things that you just didn't do. You just didn't share it. How do you think those experiences have shaped you now? They'd made me very aware of other people around me, made me very budget conscious. So weekly, monthly or um, quarterly, before a quarterly became a thing, I would sit down and live by budget and that was it. I never, when I said no to my daughter, I didn't bring her up to believe there were any financial problems because they shouldn't be visited on children. It was just no. So there was never pushback from her. And even now she's a family of her own. She says she never felt she missed out or she never felt she lost out because no was just no. There was no, I didn't need to explain it to her. I was the adult. She was the child.
1: One of the really formative foundations, I suppose, of uh, not necessarily having a lot in monetary sense to give, but you were raised in a way that you gave your time. Tell me a little bit about about what your dad told you and, and how you you know have used that through your
2: life. Yeah, it was actually my mum. Uh, so uh, yeah, so it was going to her at a time when my daughter was in school and. It was constant just finding in those days $2, $2, $2 for this, that and the other and I just couldn't do it and I said to my mum, I don't know how you did it with six of us and she said there's one thing you can do if you don't have money and that is always give you time because if you have that time, that's more valuable than money and I still live by that and I've instilled that in my friends and in my own daughter in the fact that if you don't have money, time is more valuable because you can actually say no to time. You can say, actually, I've done my hour or I could give a little bit more and you can have your children with you so they see that, so they don't see that there's a financial difference. They just see their mum, their dads all pitching in at school, or helping and that's how you become and create a community. Mm, That
1: sense of rapport I think is so deeply interwoven when you are working, grafting
2: alongside other people for a common cause. And it really is, and it does give you that that same sense of fulfilment, well, well, for me, a better sense of fulfilment because sometimes it's just easy to give $2. Mm. But when it's not, you've got to be able to find a way to make it so that people... Don't look at you with pity. And I don't know that they ever did, but that's how you feel as a human. You think, oh, I'm such a failure. I just don't have it. What can I do? Mm-hmm. You know, And I know sometimes when you had to send your children off to school, in those days you could send them with food. And you could hear some of the other mums who obviously were privileged say, oh, she sent a packet of dry biscuits. And I used to think it's probably all she had that wasn't opened in her cupboard. You know, so I really tried to change that in a whole lot of people by saying, isn't that great? Because let's get some cheese and, you know, kids eat cheese and biscuits. So I really, and like I say, I really push that because if we can't share, we're not really part of it. Well, we're not really part of a community that's going to be helpful or fruitful in our later lives or for our children.
1: And it doesn't matter what you have. You can be such a contributor to society I suppose, and suppose into the fabric of your community. Tell me about organizing your 20-year school reunion and how that changed your um, life.
2: <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. I was a nurse and I worked, ended up working with my graduation partner from the same school. And he's a very respected eye surgeon around the place. And he said to me, oh, no one organised our 10th high school reunion. If we're still working together for our 20th, do you want to do it with me? And as it turned out, we were still working together. And as it turned out, he didn't have time. So I (laughs) organised a high school reunion, got a team together. But I initially started by finding all the country borders because it was fairly easy to send letters because we did letters in those days, Mm. to um, parents because you could just open your school book and go, oh, well, they live in Keith or anywhere around the country. And And parents
1: were still on their farms, you know, I guess they're still there. Mm.
2: (laughs) And, yeah, that's right. They're still there. So it was a great place to start 20 years later. And I got this odd phone call out of the blue and it was Chris and he chatted and we decided that we'd meet up before because we were friends at school we weren't anything else and it sort of went from there he just wouldn't leave (laughs) so we um had a great time at our reunion and we've been together ever since and got married about oh we met up in 2002 and got married in 2007 so here we are in 2022 still married and now I'm a farmer I just love that story and I think, gosh, if, you do, if you're not a fatalist
1: and you don't believe in destiny, then there's a story that kind of just spins it on its head. So he was a boarder at your high school in Adelaide and that's when you first met. Um, what was it about him when you re-met 20 years later
2: that really struck you? Not only was he much better looking, <laughs> he um, is the kindest man I've ever met and he makes me every day feel worthy, beautiful and don't worry we've had our moments but he the man himself is just the true spirit of a man where he's really tough on the outside but he's got a really soft soft center so when you see somebody working with animals that's their passion that's their life that's how they treat people and he's so gentle and so thoughtful in what he does that we sort of fit together because he likes to finish the things off and do the finesse and make sure everything's well in the background, whereas I just like doing the do and I don't worry and never have about the finesse because I've never had time for it. So he's my perfect partner, and I say that to him quite openly. Mm, That's just beautiful. So what was it like? movie you'd lived
1: in Adelaide born and bred and lived there all your life what was it like moving to the farm
2: terrifying Mm. (laughs) I I'd worked in the medical field for all of my adult life and literally he said when we first started dating because he lived 300 kilometers from me so it wasn't as if it could be a quick catch up for coffee Mm. and we went in the middle I went we sort of started seeing each other in the middle of winter and I actually drove up to his property and thought, oh, this is really awful. It feels like home. I don't, I don't want this. <laughs> I just don't want to live this far from everything. And we went out. He took me out to drive around this immense property and he said, oh, and it was in the middle of winter and he said, oh, I shouldn't really drive through here. Um, I normally get bogged and I said, oh, well, don't do it. You know, just don't do it. And he's like, no, no, that'll be fine. I'll do it. Well, he bogged his ute right up to the door. And then he said, oh, sorry, I'm just going to have to walk back to the farm and get the tractor to pull you out. And I thought, oh, that's okay. It's around about 4 o'clock. And I just literally left work. So I was in a work suit with stilettos and, (laughs) you know, just a little jacket. And there's five dogs on the back of the ute and so." It came to about 8 o'clock at night from 4 and I thought, he's left me here. And I had to let the dogs off because it was freezing and I let them all in the cabin of this ute. And I couldn't run the ute because we're going to run out of petrol. And I thought, I don't know where I am. I don't know what I'm going to do. No phones. So 1 o'clock in the morning, I see this really odd light coming towards me and I thought, oh, no, it's all over. And it was the tractor, so he didn't tell me the tractor was nearly twenty kilometres from where we were. He just said, "I'm just gonna walk back to the house," and I didn't realise we were at least eleven kilometres from the house. So and. And so by the time he got to me, I was just almost beside myself and literally packed up and went home the next day and said, I'm not doing this. This is crazy. <laughs> but from that point onwards, once we, I sort of got over my little hissy fit. We, I decided I needed to learn how to drive every track tractor, every truck, every piece of machinery, because if something happened to him, I couldn't have rescued him. Mm. So, and from that point when I decided that maybe this relationship was more than just a, a fleeting thing, um, we decided that we would progress the relationship, talk marriage, got married. So I now know how to drive tractors, drive trucks, run an auger, turn an auger off, do all these things. I don't even, didn't even know what they looked like. Never alone could pronounce and say to somebody, oh, that's a case or that's a John Deere so it became really important to me not only to do that but it is life-saving so for women on farms that's just one other little skill that we all have to have in case you get the call could you bring the ute out because I've got to get the truck out of the rain or I've got to get the header and I need the tractor so you can just literally jump into any vehicle now and I can and take it to where it needs to go. And when we have fires, I can start the emergency firefighter. I can unhook all of the waterworks leading to the house to make sure that all the troughs on the farm, all they're all pumped full of water and do all of those things that I never even thought that even existed in my little bubble world of corporate and family and it's just one of those really big learning curves I just jumped straight into realising that if something happened to him, I wouldn't be able to do anything except drive 50, 60 k's to try and get help.
1: Oh, talk about a baptism of fire. I mean, he really did was sorting the wheat from the chaff when he was <laughs> <laughs> seeing if you're going to stick around. What do you run on your property? And tell me a little bit about the place.
2: We run... We have just over 5,000, I've said 200 acres, but it's 600 acres. And he, we do Angus, black Angus cattle and Dorpa lamb, which are meat lamb rather than um, wool. So we don't do a wool clip because he doesn't want to have to shear anymore. So we changed to Dorpa lambs probably around about the year we got married. What were some of the biggest changes that you
1: really realised when you moved to the farm full-time?
2: I realised I was really quite capable. Mm. Um, And I know that sounds really, really quite odd, but as a person changing, you know, having a complete life change, I was capable of more than I ever thought possible. I didn't understand farming. I knew that our meat and all of our produce came from farms but never really realized what how much that effort that takes to get that steak on your plate to get that lettuce in your fridge to do all of those things that you have to do because it's a 24-7 job and I just thought oh you know this would be great we can farm you know one season and I thought it was like England like what you see on the TVs all these beautiful green fields and all these happy animals always eating and you know people having wonderful times in pig sheds or in cattle yards and I can tell you now I'd never heard such language till I had to help my husband the first year in the cattle yards and at the end of the day I was oh my god I'm such a failure I've been never been and I and I learned very quickly don't respond back because if you start taking things personally it becomes a really big fight so at the end of the day go oh look I'm really sorry you know I didn't mean I just get so frustrated and then I worked out that you know there's a couple of times in in a couple of times in my life where he's sort of fallen onto the ground and I sort of thought oh I hope something treads on him (laughs) They, they never have, but he has had some serious accidents. But it's, it's one of those things that you just think, oh, gee, I'm quite, quite a capable person and I can, I can wear this, I can do this, and now I know I can actually even do it on my own if he's not there or if he's injured. And there's probably two times in our last 20 years where I've suddenly got that really third sense or sixth sense of he's in trouble I've got to go and find him. And one of them was back in the same original paddock. I drove up there and I, and I sort of thought, oh, this this is not right. There's something. And he had probably 10, 10, at least 30 tonne of hay on two trailers and he jackknifed it. And he actually couldn't move in the tractor because he knew. And he'd been sitting there for an hour and because we, we can't, mobile phones don't work on our property and he kept thinking I'm going to slip backwards and if I slip backwards I'm going to flip the whole tractor and probably end up dead so I've got there and he's like how did you know like go and get the other tractor and so I had to go and get the other tractor and literally come in and hold the whole load so he could straighten up the tractor without um, flipping it and then the second time was when I thought, oh, when cattle make noise and different noises because we don't have traffic or so I can hear things from the house and I thought they sound really odd. So I went down to the cattle yards and was actually underneath the cod bike. He actually didn't see a cow and a cow literally took him sideways and flipped him under the cod bike and he'd literally, he's such a strong man, um, he'd almost had the cod bike off him by the time I got there. Luckily, we always have a tractor there, so I was able to help him do that. But he'd broken three ribs. Mm. He'd done all of this, and we had all this cattle. So he had to sit in the ute while I had to finish doing the cattle work. And the cattle yard, the handle to let the cattle out of the race is taller than me. So I had to jump every time to do this, which added an extra 10 minutes, because I knew he had to get to hospital because I didn't want him to have – a ruptured lung or anything like that but you sort of get to work out and as a nurse sort of did the quick check yep no you're fine um so for the next eight weeks and even to three years later now even now he says oh my ribs still really hurt you know so you become really capable and you become more aware of your surroundings than you probably would in the city
1: what was um why did you get into branding or branding, yeah, your own branded meat,
2: bullies meats. How did that come about? Oh, I, I learned fairly quickly when you marry a farmer, it's one income a year, and I thought, what, what,
0: <laughs> what yeah. do you mean? I
2: have to, and being a budgeter, it's it's still a, quite a shock. So I was like, what am I going to do for money? We were still in the family succession planning, and we still contribute to his parents' off farm income because that's the way it is and I thought oh you know I also want to get off the farm I want to be able to see my daughter who was in university and my parents and how do I do this without taking too much more income and, and I know and he said oh well most women work off farm well I applied for a couple of jobs in the local town to be told too overqualified you know this is probably not the job for you and then our family because we were giving them lamb said you know this this is great lamb and I thought oh I know I'll start a business and I'll sell our meat and my husband's name is Bullen and he was known as Bully or Mad Dog at school so <laughs> that's a quite an easy choice what to call the <laughs> business because at the same time a girlfriend of mine said why don't you see if you can sell your beef into China so I went about getting all of our Export qualifications and everything I needed to do that. So we really couldn't justify, you know, mad dog meats in China. So <laughs> became bullies meats. Doesn't have quite the same ring to it, does it? <laughs> no, funny.
1: <laughs> and so the, obviously the export, navigating the export market is just a minefield in and of itself. Um, how was that for you? And, and then also, servicing your meat and, and producing uh,
2: processing your meat how challenging was that probably the hardest thing I've ever done the industry itself is so protected it's so male-dominated that and it's so um, centralized into two main areas in Australia so that being New South Wales and Queensland, there's no option in South Australia or along the lower part of Australia to get a service skill, which is what it's called. So I don't want to sell you my animals. I want to have mm. them slaughtered and cut so I can unsell the meat. So it became that became nearly a two-year process mm. to be able to get an abattoir that would assist us. And literally going into China... It's not the the wealthy thing that everybody realised. It's not the golden ticket. So when the first meat ban came into place um, due to the political climate back in 2017, we had a 40-foot container of meat on the water heading directly into China. And our Chinese buyers messaged us and said, "Oh, oh, this is bad. This is bad. Um, they're going to ban that abattoir for labelling issues so we don't know if you're going to be able to buy your meat and then I found out that because of this ban the ship literally gone straight into Beijing so I had to get Chris onto a plane into Sydney into Beijing and of course you have to have valid visas to go in there and all of this sort of stuff and luckily we had updated our passports not not that long before and he had to sit in China for 10 days to make sure that they didn't take our meat and not pay us Mm. and from that point we went yeah this is to an unstable market this is not going to this is not going to resolve itself very quickly so we haven't exported since then purely luckily now because of course we've had another ban since and they probably China probably won't lift that ban for another five or six years Mm. or maybe if we get a change of government but I can't see it
0: Mm. so
2: it's a minefield of its own but the biggest thing about all of that is all of the shut doors that I had to try and open so since then I have been working with a consortium of people to get a service skill abattoir built here in South Australia and we're almost there
1: that in itself is such a feat and it costs a lot of money i mean how much have you had to raise and when are you hoping that the first sod will be turned on the plant
2: we thought we would be okay with 94 million but which we've realized um but we're now looking for about 105 million dollars so the industry itself is unhelpful the Regulations and legislations around it is extremely unhelpful, and having had a change of government here we're now beginning the process again mm, God it's so, so we're hard. hoping that within the next two months wow. we will have something sorted
1: tell me about meeting Jessica the co-founder of Carry to country and how carry to country came about
2: yeah amazing young lady i love her to bits we i was granted a scholarship for the governor's leadership foundation course here in south australia the same year she was so we became really firm friends and she was a really great support because while that was all going on we were i was dealing with the meat ban and all of the things that a lot of people had no idea she did not neither but she just was a really great you know it's going to be all right and she had to go on country for some family business in 2018. And she and she that great job, she's a highly educated young lady. And she rang me and she said, You're not going to believe what we're having to pay for meat here out in community. And I said, I don't know what you mean. And she said, Well, this community and we have to pay, we've got a family business going on that we need to be able to feed probably 50 people. She said, My brother and I, we can't afford. To buy enough food to even feed twenty, and I said, "What are you talking about?" And she said, "The meat here, the prices are just unbelievable." She said, "You know, there's seventy dollars for five hundred grams of minced meat," and I said, "No, they've, they've marked it wrong. That that's just that's just unheard of. That's and she said, "No, no, that's what it is." And I said, "Well, tell me what you want, and I'll get it to you when do you need it." And she said, oh, in about four days. And so I managed to talk with our butcher and, you know, get some lambs off and get some meat off and talk to the freight company. And we happened to get it there exactly on the day for the money she wanted to spend to feed 60 people. And she came back and she said, how is it you can get meat easier to China and more affordable than we can get in our communities. And I said, I've got no idea. And so we both worked out there and then that we had to do something. She had, you know, felt the need because it was her community. I felt, felt the need because Bullies Meats has been donating food to families since we started the project um since I started the business I should say so that anybody at any time can contact me and say I'm a family or I know of a family that hasn't got any food can you help and Jessica in her job when she was here in Adelaide worked also in schools and with the Department of Community and Families and she used to ring me and go I've got a family that haven't eaten for five days and I'd say go to the house in Adelaide there's a freezer out the back and we made up packs so that eventually she could just come and just grab it and just give it to people or I could get my mum to do it or anybody could come and take food out of our spare freezer to feed families. So I said, we already are creating part of the solution. So let's make this a transaction because there's one thing we all have to do and recognise is everybody has pride. So giving something to somebody all the time isn't actually as helpful as it seems. And every person wants to contribute to their lifestyle. So we've made it so it's a complete transaction. They they buy meat from the producer or I do. And it goes to the process. It goes to the butcher. It goes to the freight company. So Jessica's company is now the first Aboriginal-owned and operated meat distribution company in Australia. So it all goes to her they she then on sells it at a reasonable cost in reasonable quantities, and people buy it direct from them. Now in Alice Springs, so that goes into Northern Territory and down into the APY lands here in South Australia. And Bullies Meat still services all of those people that ask on a weekly basis for food if they need it. And my good clients, I have a pay it forward in our bullies' meats option. So if somebody wants to just donate money, we match it dollar for dollar and we will give meat to whoever asks for it free of charge. And I tell people if they want to know, they say, oh, I can't afford to pay this. And I said, no, it's already been paid for. So everybody understands that at the end of the day, all of our stakeholders and line people, we all get paid and it, that's important to everybody. Mm.
1: And you offer um, payment plans as well, interest-free payment plans
2: for. Yes, we've got. Um, it's taken us two years or nearly three years now to get pay and Basic Card up there, so they can actually do it like a layby. They mm. put the money down, and on the second payment, they get the meat, and then they just pay it off, to to pay it off till that that debt's finished. And it's working so well because we're not expecting them to pay 80% of their income to Mm -hmm. feed their families. Mm -hmm. And that's what has been happening historically around a lot of communities that are in poverty.
1: What are some of the statistics, particularly uh, around women and First Nations women, around feeding their families? Um, Well,
2: most, most families live in groups of more than 10 or 20. So... You can imagine, and that's their family, that's their culture, that's not because they're all forced to, a lot of them choose to. But two in every 10 women in Australia weekly, unwillingly go without food for 24 hours. If you're Indigenous, it's double that. So four in every 10 women that are Indigenous, Aboriginal, marginalised, will go unwillingly without food for 24 hours every week to feed their children, to pay their bills, just to exist. And the male statistics, it's one in every 10 men. And if you're Aboriginal, it's two in every 10 men. So we're not doing a good job. We are just not doing a good job.
1: I think it just blows my mind and it really brings home to me my own ignorance and my own privilege that I don't, I didn't know of any of this before we spoke. And I found it so staggering that in a developed country, there are so many going so hungry. What have been some of the experiences you've had on the ground
2: with people who don't have food? I'm not a hugger and I say that, but one one of the things that started this for me back in Bullies Meats was I did a call-out at Christmas and I said, oh, does anybody want any food? We've got that much lamb. It's ridiculous. And I was contacted by a lady. who said, I've got four elders who are entertaining their family and need food. So I said, sure, no worries. Just give me their dresses if that's the protocol or I'll give them to you because I didn't understand understand enough about aboriginal culture or protocols to you know I'm, I'm a person who sticks my nose everywhere so i just had to ask that question so i got all of that and i got to this lady's house and she let me in which i was told to expect not to and i could see she wasn't doing well so i packed up all of her food all of her meat for her and she's telling me how her grandson was coming with his beautiful partner and their lovely two children for Christmas. So I said, well, this is the roast. So I'll put that in on a plate in your fridge. And she said, oh, no, I'll do that. And I, and I said, so I'll just put the rest in your, in your freezer. And she just looked at me and because I was still very naive. And she said, oh, I've never had spare food. And I just looked at her and smiled as you do as you're ignorant And I thought, oh, I don't know what that means. And I opened her freezer and there literally was not a single thing in her freezer. It was just like it was in the showroom. There wasn't even an ice cube. And I am still physically affected by that because she's living almost next door to me here in Adelaide and lives in a middle-class suburb and there she is without anything and that's acceptable and that was acceptable to her because that was how she lived. So even at the times when I was living my food insecurity, I still knew I could have a loaf of bread, some milk, some mincemeat or um, anything, tacos or something to feed my daughter and there she was thanking me, and then she hugged me, which is something that this this lady and I were still great mates today, said she's never, ever seen her or heard of her touching a white woman because they all see what we do, what we are, privileged, and we don't share that. So, and I still see this same lady today, and I make sure every three months she's got a fridge full of food, and it changed her life from the fact that she didn't have to worry for Christmas. You know, like imagine, as you say, I'm a very privileged white woman and I have worked hard to get that, But as we all do, but you just never see that side of life living next door to you. That, And, you know, the saying, don't be hard on the person standing next to you because you just don't know what they're going through, is something that resonates with me every day. And that image of her and her freezer will will and has forever changed me. And when I'm asked to speak about food security, I start with that story and it silences rooms and it should. We should all be going, how do we do? What do we do? How can I help you, Robin? What can we do? Because we can't rely on government because they have to do so much. We have to step in. And I'm really good at stepping in and I'm not really good at stepping out. So once I'm in, you're stuck with me. (laughs) Thank goodness for that, Robin. (laughs) I think it's also really important to
1: note that it is very difficult to pull yourself out of poverty if you're too busy thinking about the next meal or how to feed your family. And it's very difficult to think about work and education and next week if you're thinking about food for today. So that is such, a, you know, by feeding someone and, and having a full belly and a bright mind, and you know, then you can have your cognitive faculties, then you can be thinking about the next step and long-term
2: goals, but you can't do that on an empty stomach. You can't. And, and we expect and we know that people do it. But we don't see it because they hide it so well. So it changes people's lives, as you as you just said. And we have to keep doing that. If we're not looking after each other, we're not doing a good job as a human race. And we have so much food in this country. There's enough food in this world, in storage, that could feed everybody. It's just not a political um. Gain to do that. And I don't know why. I really don't know why. And the value, like you say, and imagine knowing, trying to work out which day of the week you're not going to eat. So you would wake up every day going, Is that today? Do I put that off till tomorrow? And you can imagine, like you say, the size of everything and just get smaller and smaller and smaller. So your world gets smaller and smaller and smaller because. It's not that you're not wanting to ask for help. It's just that a lot of these places and a lot of these people don't even know where to start because it becomes such a compounding problem once you start in that cycle. We look, we as a society look at people that are unemployed, that are living in poverty as people that need to get out and get a job. So but how do you do that when, as you say, all you're thinking about is, oh, am I going to eat today? Am I going to feed my children today? So,
1: how does carry to Country work logistically? So you take meat out onto community, um you organise the freight, all of that sort of stuff. So how do people help? How do listeners, how do the Gray her community help you?
2: Well, thank you for asking that question. We're part of the award that I've just won, the 15,000 bursary is Rural Women. We are now, and I'm literally waiting on a phone call today. We have raised money to get a trailer cool room in a ute. So the trailer, unfortunately, is still in Melbourne, and we've got to get that to. Uh, the Northern Territory to be fitted on the ute. So the bursary is going to be big percentage of that is going to be used to do that. So Jessica and Jordan and Tommy and the team will now be able to go out onto community literally to deliver the meat. So it stays fresh, it stays cool. It, it can get there. But for graziers, I'm go- I'm looking for those animals. They can't sell. We want to pay for them. If they want to donate them. Yeah. Hey, thank you. I'll take them too. But I want everybody to understand it's a transaction so they can find me on Facebook, they can find me on social media and and I'm just about to, um, they can actually find Jessica on the website, Kerry to Country, so they can contact her and say, hey, how do, we, how do we go about helping? But we'll take any help. We're not going to be proud about this. <laughs> and I think even sometimes it's not just about the meat, it's if they have product that they don't know what to do with. We work closely with Food Bank and that's a lot of other things. People say, why aren't you working with Food Bank? Well, we do. They have just come out and said they have fed more people this year than they have for the whole of last year during COVID. Mm. So they're struggling to Mm. get food and produce. So the more that people stick their hand up and say they want to help, Mm. the more we'll take it. And I'll be able to direct them anywhere with whatever to be able to help other people whether they want to be paid for it or whether they don't that it that will be entirely their choice Mm.
1: robin you're an absolute phenomenon and i think we're all extremely lucky that you organized your high school reunion so (laughs) so you ended up (laughs) you ended up on the land and you've ended up just doing such amazing work so thank you so much for for joining me on life on the land
2: Oh, Thanks, Emily, and I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to have the voice.
1: Talking to women and hearing their experiences is such a privilege, and learning through their stories is one of the great joys of my job. It's not always an easy listen, especially when hearing of great adversity or when my own bias or preconceived perceptions are challenged – But that's what makes for rich and nuanced conversation. I loved speaking to Jessica and Robin and felt so inspired by the solution-based Aboriginal-led model they've created. I learned a lot. I really feel like if you want something done properly, you've got to ask a busy woman. We will include the website for Kura to Country in the show notes so you can jump on and learn about what it's achieving and how you can support it. If you took something away from this yarn or any of our conversations – I'd love it if you could share with a loved one. Help us to spread the Grazy Her word. We'd like to acknowledge that this Grazy Her podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Gamilaroi people, and we pay respect to the elders, both past, present and future. This is a production of the Manson Podcasting Network for Grazy Her.